It's Tuesday, March 28th. They're still counting their age on their fingers, but they're old enough for a school shooting. We start here. Armed with two assault rifles, a shooter opens fire at a Christian elementary school. We have a manifesto, we have some writings that we're going over that uh, pertain to this day. What we know about the victims in Nashville and the shooter. Benjamin Netanyahu backs down for now. Are people going to fight or are people going to seek to put their differences aside and work this out? In trying to avoid a civil war, could violence still be on the horizon? And don't look now, but more tornadoes could be on the way. We are entering into the most dynamic, climatologically, season for tornadoes. Entire towns are reeling and concerns in the deep south are swirling. From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Brad Milkey. When President Bill Clinton addressed the nation in 1999 about the shooting at a suburban high school called Columbine, he described himself as shocked and saddened. Hillary and I are profoundly shocked and saddened by the tragedy today in Littleton. Those were the same words used nearly a decade later by George W. Bush when a student opened fire at Virginia Tech University. Our nation is shocked and saddened by the news of the shootings at Virginia Tech today. Since then, every U.S. president has had to give virtually the same speech again. I know there's not a parent in America who doesn't feel the same overwhelming grief that I do. And again. And we hurt for the entire community of Parkland, Florida. Knowing Americans wanted to stop and knowing that lawmakers likely won't pass anything to stop it. So I call on Congress again to pass my assault weapons ban. President Biden has made similar remarks about shootings at schools and synagogues and Fourth of July parades. And every time nothing changes, the average American could be forgiven for losing just a little bit more faith. Aren't you guys tired of being here and having to cover all of these mass shootings? And so yesterday, when gunshots rang out at an elementary school in Nashville, Tennessee, a tourist visiting from the same city in Illinois where that 4th of July parade shooting took place was now on hand for a second mass shooting near her. I'm from Highland Park, Illinois. My son and I survived a mass shooting over the summer. I am in Tennessee on a family vacation with my son visiting my sister-in-law. And she told reporters her faith is gone by now. I have met with over 130 lawmakers. How is this still happening? How are our children still dying and why are we failing them? A community is mourning and a nation is seething after more children have been murdered at an American school. Let's take it to ABC's Alex Perez, who's in Nashville, Tennessee. Alex, can you just walk me through what happened here? Well, uh, Brad, uh, terrible news and really just creating this sort of cloud of sadness around Nashville and around much of the country right now. People, as they learn about what happened in Nashville. Uh, When we send our kids to school or to any place of safety, we expect them to live, learn, have fun and come back from that day, day's experience. We don't anticipate things like this. Now, according to uh, authorities, it was just after 10 in the morning on Monday when the first call came in. They've got a description of white camo, and they're actually hearing gunfire, so. Law enforcement racing to Covenant School. It's a private Christian school uh, in Nashville, and they encountered a 28-year-old shooter. Uh, We know and believe that entry was gained through shooting through one of the doors. And 
made it all the way up to the second floor of the building, shooting along the way. We heard many shots, just like really, really loud. Some were louder than the other. According to authorities, uh, the shooter was armed with two AR-15 style rifles and also a handgun and many rounds of ammunition. Uh, We believe two of those may have been obtained legally locally here. This did not end until authorities, officers arrived, five of them. They entered the building, they confronted the shooter. Officers entered the first story of the school, began clearing it. They heard shots coming from the second level. They immediately went to the gunfire. An exchange of gunfire happened and authorities killed the shooter, Brad. But um, in the end, there were three adult staff members and three young children, nine years old each, that were killed. The three nine-year-olds who were killed, Evelyn Dickhouse, William Kenny, Hallie Scruggs. And then uh, three adults, Catherine Koontz, she was 60 years old. She was the head of the school, according to the school's website. And uh, Cynthia Peake, a substitute teacher at the school, and also Mike Hill, a custodian at the school. And so we know a little bit about the victims. Do we know anything about the shooter, Alex? This sounded like it might have even been someone who used to go to this school. Who is this? So we still have a lot of unanswered questions about the shooter, but we do know that authorities say the shooter was 28 years old. Yes, from our investigations tell us that she was a former student uh, at the school. I don't know what grade she's attended or grades, but we do uh, firmly believe she was a student there. Police say the shooter identified as transgender. The shooter, according to authorities, left behind multiple writings. No, we have a manifesto. We have some writings that we're going over uh, that uh, pertain to this day, the actual incident. We have a map drawn out of how this was all going to take place. And authorities are interviewing the shooter's parents as they work now to pinpoint what exactly uh, this person was doing. But uh, the shooter lived here in Nashville and uh, authorities, they're reviewing all the videos associated with the shooting uh, and from cameras at the school and near the school as they work to piece together uh, what the exact motive may have been. Yeah, and you mentioned the shooter was transgender. The police later clarified the shooter was assigned female at birth and then appeared to use he and him pronouns on social media. That's kind of the extent of, of what we know at this moment. Alex, I wanted to ask you about security also, because l- like last week, after a school shooting in Colorado, there were questions about having school resource officers, like basically cops who were stationed at schools. That did not seem to be the case at this school either, right? What was this school's security apparatus? Yeah, a lot of public schools work closely with city police departments, particularly in big cities, to have what they call resource officers posted at that school. That's a police officer who who develops a relationship with the students at that school, is someone that they see all the time. But that's something that usually happens at public schools. No, this is a church uh, that operates a private school. Uh, There was no Metro Police personnel assigned to that building at any time. This is a school of about 200 uh, kids, about 40 staff members. Um, They do not have a school resource officer at the property because it's a private school, but they do have uh, an active shooter protocol plan in place. 
we saw a lot of those kids follow that protocol, follow the procedure, and they're walking out of the school in a straight line um, with that look of fear in their eyes. It's very tragic. It's, it's, it's two blocks from our house. It could happen at any school. But really, it remains unclear, though, Brad, even if there had been a resource officer, we don't know what the outcome would have been. Um, right. So it's really hard to say. Yeah. And at this moment, uh, the leading cause of death among children is not disease, it's not drownings or car accidents. It's guns. Uh, Alex Perez there in Nashville, Tennessee. Thank you so much. Thanks, Brad. Next up on Start Here, if Israel is trying to avoid a civil war, it might not be the best idea to give people their own personal armies. We go to Tel Aviv after the break. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Israel has long been a country under siege. Several world leaders are on record saying it shouldn't even exist. And while you can debate the role that Israel has played in that animosity, the threats from the outside world are very real. But in just the span of a few days, the worry has been that Israel could even fall apart from within. When far-right allies of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu pushed legislation to let politicians essentially overrule the Supreme Court, people from across the country took to the streets. When the defense minister said Netanyahu's effort to change the legal code led to walkouts by angry recruits and was hampering military readiness, Netanyahu fired him. The protest that sprung out of that on Sunday night made people start legitimately worrying about a potential civil war. We will continue to fight until this madness is stopped and order is returned to our country. Throughout the day yesterday, there was a question of what Netanyahu would do. Eventually, he appeared to hit the pause button on this. ABC's foreign correspondent James Longman has made his way to Israel. James, before we even get into Netanyahu kind of standing down here, what is it like there right now? It's an odd combination of concern, of anxiety, but also jubilation at this kind of small win. I think the crowds here feel as though this has been a long time coming. You know, they've been protesting for three months. Every week, tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of Israelis coming out onto the streets to say they're not happy uh, about Benjamin Netanyahu's plans. And now something feels as though it has shifted. I say here and now, there can be no civil war. Israeli society is on a dangerous collision course. Benjamin Netanyahu at last came out to say that he was going to stall, he was going to freeze this legislation. So there's this kind of combination of happiness at this battle won, but knowledge that the war is still yet to be fought and the fundamental battle lines that exist in Israel, have always existed in Israel, which are now bubbling up to the surface, they're all, they're all visible. Everyone can see them. The question is, are people going to fight or are people going to seek to put their differences aside and work this out? 
it doesn't feel like the latter is going to happen. It feels like Benjamin Netanyahu is betting in for the long haul and people on the street, they sense that. Well, and, and we've seen in the past Israelis, you know, protesting the actions of their own government. That's not necessarily new. What was new here, it seemed to be, was just like the huge numbers and just the, the visceral reaction that you felt like people were like, nope, we are done with this prime minister. What was behind this decision then for him? Yeah, I mean, look, these protests have been going on for 12 weeks, but something fundamental shifted when Benjamin Netanyahu decided to fire his defense minister, Yoav Gallant. General Yoav Gallant insisting the overhaul poses a, quote, clear, immediate and tangible threat to Israel's security, fueling divisions in the Israeli army. This man, an ally of Benjamin Netanyahu's from the same party, said, look, the security of the country is at risk. And for a country where the military really is part of the heart and soul of Israel, everyone does military service here. It's a fundamental building block, the security of Israel. Every single leader of this country says, you know, that that is their main priority to keep Israel safe. If the military somehow gets involved, if, if the military is un, un, under threat, if major individuals from the military establishment say, hang on a minute, this is not safe for Israel, then the stakes suddenly get raised, added to these 12 weeks of protest. And that's even perhaps when leaders start going, don't follow Netanyahu, follow me instead. Like, that's when it gets really dangerous. Well, it does, exactly. And you have these reservists say, look, we don't feel as though we can be part of this. Uh, we, don't, we don't feel as though we can follow our, our, our leaders if they're saying these sorts of things, if they're willing to put the security of the country at risk. Uh, and so now it feels as though... Uh, across the board in in the Israeli political and military establishment, everyone is kind of working out which camp they're sitting in. Today, the great majority of the public recognizes the urgency of democratic reform of the judicial system. We will not allow anyone to rob the people of its free choice. And actually, when Benjamin Netanyahu spoke to the nation, this did not feel like a man coming to the nation to apologize. It did not feel like a man who felt that somehow this was a crisis of his making. He spoke very clearly, saying he felt that there were elements in Israeli society which were seeking to pull society apart, and it was his job to make sure that this country remains safe. And he was just pausing this legislation, but he did not have any intention of scrapping it altogether. But the reality here is he's only moved the deadline. The core issue has not been changed. Mm. And he was resolute. He is fundamentally not backing down. So all that's happened now is he's kicked the can down the road four weeks, and we may well be here again. The difference is, is that, you know, he has struck a deal with members of the far right, uh, these nationalist, ethno-nationalist extreme uh, parties which joined him in coalition. Uh, and people are waiting to see what exactly it is that he's given them in order to stay in power. And one hint of what may have been given is Ben Gavir, who is the national uh, security minister, he put out a statement saying that he was willing to allow this legislation to be frozen because he has been now given a national guard. I mean, that sounds like He's been given his own militia. This man is from the extreme fringe. What, what do you mean given a national guard? Like of his own? Yeah, he's going to be put in charge of uh, a police force immediately under his, his command, which he's calling the National Guard. It's not clear where it's going to fit into the security infrastructure. And we're now coming into kind of the territory that we're familiar in places like Lebanon with militia. 
where politicians have their own mini armies to call upon when they want to get stuff done. It's a fundamental issue about what people believe Israel is for. It's an existential question that's been bubbling under the surface for years. It's a, it's a vision of this country. Do people here believe that it's a liberal democracy, a home for the Jewish people in a kind of pluralistic democratic society? Or do they believe that it is, should be some kind of religious, almost dictatorship with a strict interpretation of Judaism? So, you know, when you have a state like this, which is based on a religious claim to land, that's a big question. How religious should that state be? How hard line should that interpretation be? Uh, and so the, this is an issue that Israel has been grappling with for some time. It's come to a head now because they've got a leader in Benjamin Netanyahu who is seemingly willing to give his allies whatever they want in order to serve his own uh, political interests. Wow, just such nervy moments there. All right, James Longman there in Tel Aviv in Israel. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, bro. The death toll for Mississippi's outbreak of tornadoes this weekend was mercifully revised downward yesterday, since in the chaos some deaths might have been counted twice. But the number of lives claimed in the severe weather still remains above 20. And this is key, because these storms are part of a broader weather system, they're still wreaking havoc. This might not be over. ABC's chief meteorologist Ginger Z is with us. And Ginger, first off, you were there, right? I mean, what did you notice about these storms and their devastation when you arrived in Mississippi? There's nothing that ever makes an EF4's damage or an EF5's damage prepare you for what it feels like to see life scraped from the earth like that. Oh my God! And I don't mean just the lives lost, but the injuries that people are going to be dealing with forever. It's really seeing the world as we know it upended. We lost everything, but we got our life. Told the house out, told my truck out. When I first showed up, the first thing that yeah. caught my eye was these giant big rigs, the semi-trucks. And people will do that cliche, well, they were tossed like toys. They were stacked like toys. I looked up, it was a truck uh, had landed on top of the bathroom. So I panicked a little bit. They were slammed into houses. There must have been several parked um, close by, you know, this part of the neighborhood where we were. Um, I walked up next to what was obviously not a home because it had corrugated metal twisted from the top and it was it looked large and uh, it ended up being the community market and I started looking in and and that's when you get those details of you know part of it was a hardware store where you had those drawers where all the little screws and nails they're still in place but the whole rest of the building is gone. The town's devastated. Uh, trash, um, trees, houses, homes. Uh, the, the gardening center with these books on signs of spring. And all I could think was, well, these are the signs of spring, unfortunately, here in Mississippi. Well, and, and you're, I think, on the move right now, right? Like, sounds like you're in an airport. You're kind of hopping around, getting a sense of, of you know, several places that could be impacted by these types of weather systems, right? So, I mean, w what are we looking at going forward? Well, that's the thing is we are entering into the most dynamic climatologically season for tornadoes, right? March and April is when we see those numbers really ramp up. And we often see very strong tornadoes. Take Mississippi, for example. Since 1950, when real tornado records began, they've seen more than 400 EF2 or higher tornadoes in just the month of March. That's a lot of years. And you say, okay, and they average about five tornadoes in the month of March. So we do, at the end of March and early April, start to see the numbers creep up. 
This year, and right now, in the coming weeks, I see a very dynamic setup. I see something that we haven't seen for a few years, where we have this big digging trough um, in the West, where it's going to be cooler and wetter, as we've been seeing, and then this big push of heat and moisture in the East. That division is what tornadoes are born from. And unfortunately, it looks like that pattern of the jet stream is going to be set up for a few weeks. We see extreme weather events increasing, only increasing in gravity, in severity, and in frequency. We see that at this very moment for this Friday. So already, days in advance, we can tell you that there will be intense, severe weather, tornadoes, likely deadly tornadoes if it hits a town. And that's essentially like the kind of warnings we were getting last Friday. That essentially, the entire state was under these kind of blanket like, hey, this is prime time. Uh, we're already getting signs of that coming again. All right, Ginger Z, thanks a lot. Thank you. All right, one more quick break. When we come back, even a broken time zone system is right twice a year. One last thing is next. And one last thing. A couple weeks ago, Americans went to daylight saving time. Europe and lots of other countries did so this weekend. They're a bit delayed. More and more countries, though, are done with clock switching. Greenland has become the latest country to say we're just making daylight saving permanent all year round. But what happens when you make that change and no one knows about it? So what time is it where you are right now? Right now it's 1030 in the, at night. Oh, no. Well, OK, if I go by what time it is, it should be 930 at night. <laughs> That's Katya Abu Arab, who moved from Miami to Lebanon a few years ago and has spent the last few days stuck in a time warp. I'll tell you, I woke up on Sunday morning going, what time is it? I was so confused when I woke up. See, every year, Lebanon does the time change thing, just like us. But suddenly last week, some lawmakers objected. They wanted to postpone it um, for, for Ramadan, for those who are fasting. The thinking was that if the sun went down at 6 p.m. and not 7 p.m., lives would be made easier. So at the last minute, they declared the clocks were staying put. Only problem was, not everyone got the message. So for the last 48 hours, when someone says, meet me at 9 a.m., you got to specify. Do you mean 9 a.m. government time or the time everyone else is going by? One person just now, is the French embassy open, uh, the consulate open on... You know, uh, on Wednesday, at what time? Like, nobody knows. Nobody knows. To make matters worse, the government didn't clear this with tech companies. You know how at this point your phone automatically changes overnight? You don't have to do anything? Well, some services did that. Some didn't. So if you're waking up, you might not even know whether you've made the switch or not. Airports suddenly didn't know when to send planes off. Businesses were opening whenever they liked. This was the worst thing is that all these parents... We're so confused. And because some of the some of the schools were saying they're going to go with the government time and mm. some of the schools were saying that they're going with the international time and some people had pickups at different times and it was just a mess. And as for the rationale to make Ramadan fasting easier, many Lebanese don't buy that either. Like if you break your fast earlier, great. It also means you started it earlier too. The sun's in the sky for the same number of hours. At the end of the day, I said Indonesia has one billion Muslims that didn't change the time. Rather, critics say this was the result of a highly politicized government wanting to score last minute points with some influential religious leaders at the expense of planning and common sense. Another resident we heard from described it as a national embarrassment. Now, leaders are backpedaling, saying they will indeed move the clocks forward tomorrow night. Here in the U.S., some lawmakers have grown more and more vociferous about eliminating time changes as well. And there might be merit on either side of this debate, but let this be a warning. It takes time to make time. I should say, our producer, Jen, hates stories about losing standard time because in her words, we 
talk about this twice a year, every year. Wake me up when something actually happens. But Jen, look at when it does happen, how big a deal it becomes. Make sure to hit that follow or subscribe button if you have not already. You'll get a new episode around 6 a.m. Eastern or whatever time the computers say it is right then. I'm Brad Milkey. See you at some point tomorrow. Mm-hmm.